As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach us your statutes. You have dealt well with your servants, O Lord, according to your word. So open our eyes so that we may see Jesus by his spirit. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to consider together verses 25 through 28 together this evening in connection with Lord's Day 2 of the Catechism. Luke 25 to 28, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1105 on most of the pew Bibles and between Mark and John, the third gospel. So Luke chapter 10, and we're just going to read those four verses, 25 to 28. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless it to us. Uh, Maybe when you saw the heading of this passage and saw that I was going to stop at verse 28, you thought you're stopping just when it's starting to get good. Um, The well-known parable of the Good Samaritan, famous to us, uh, still in our common parlance today. If somebody does a good deed on the evening news, they'll still call them a Good Samaritan. Uh, for, for doing a good deed. But uh, the prelude to this is very interesting that Jesus has this conversation uh, with a lawyer. Um, now, this is not the typical kind of lawyer that we think of. Um, this is not someone who's an expert in uh, the civil or the criminal laws. This is someone who's an expert in God's law. And this is an interesting exchange. The heading here says, The Parable of the Good Samaritan in the ESV. Uh, R.C. Sproul kind of said, that's a good title, that's what this whole passage is about, Uh, but you could give it another title, um, The Contest Between the Lawyer and the Teacher. Um, And that's really what we see going on here. There's a lawyer, an expert in the law, who comes to Jesus, who he regards as something of a lay teacher, um, and wants to put him to the test to see what he knows, Um, see what he knows about this important fundamental question. Uh, how he would answer this question that the lawyer puts to him. Um, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Um, He's not asking this question sincerely, right? We're told right off the bat why he's asking this question. It's to test how he'll answer. There's every indication this was the question that that rabbis and experts in the, in, in the law would talk about. This was the hot topic of debate. This is what a teacher would be asked by his disciples. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so the lawyer is putting what he thinks is a very fine question to Jesus and wants to see how he's going to answer, if he's going to know how to respond to this question. And of course, it's a very important question. Um, And how Jesus works through this with the lawyer is very instructive for us, thinking about how we ought to think about the law of God and about eternal life. And so as we see this contest between the lawyer and Jesus, it tells us something very important about the law, about eternal life, and about ourselves. And we want to think of this in light of Lord's Day 2 
um, as we wrestle with the things that the word has to teach us here. So as we see what Jesus does in this context, in this contest with the lawyer, I think first we see the right standard. Um, a big part of this discussion is establishing the right standard for life. We want to see what the right standard is and how the right standard leads us to the revealed problem. If we understand the law correctly, then we understand the problem correctly uh, that all people are facing, and we have to draw the wretched conclusion uh, that we draw. Now, I'm not going to leave us in wretchedness, so if you're worried that that's a lousy last point for a preacher to stop on, uh, we are going to think not only about wretchedness in that last point, but I think it's important as we think about this question, as we think about the implications of this question, to really wrestle with the fact that if we have the right standard, it reveals the problem, um, and we can only make one wretched conclusion um, about our lives in light of God's holy law. Uh, so what is the right standard? What do we mean by that, that we see them come to the right standard? Well, notice that the lawyer's question to Jesus puts the inheritance of eternal life in terms of doing. Right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that puts it squarely in the realm of working, of doing. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That's the question he puts to Jesus to test him. As I said earlier, this, this was a debate in, in religious circles. What exactly do you need to do? Um, as the parable will go on, you know, Jesus, he'll say, you need to love your neighbor, and then he'll ask, who is my neighbor? You know, you can spin out all of these things and turn relatively simple questions into scholarly debate. Scholars are good at that, um, turning these things into uh, spinning out weird questions and, and, you know, all kinds of different opinions about something. Um, this is the question of the day. He wants to see what Jesus will say about it, and he puts it in terms of doing. What do you need to do to inherit eternal life? Um, he's trying to see where Jesus sides in this debate, how he will participate in this debate. Um, and, of course, Jesus being wiser than the people who put him to the test, um, the lawyer has no idea who he's really entering into a conversation with. Um, Jesus does something wonderful. He answers his question with a question. Um, and says, well, why are you asking me in a sense? You're the expert in the law. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, that's a masterful response in two ways. One, because this person is supposed to be an expert in the law. Um, he, he's a lawyer. He's the one who's supposed to be reading this all the time, reciting this all the time. He's supposed to be spending all of his time in the Word. So Jesus takes him back to the Word. What is written in the Word is really what Jesus asks him. What is written there? Um, and in, in, in asking the question that way, not only does he frame it in terms of you're the, you're the legal expert, the law of God expert, you tell me what the law of God says in its writing, Jesus also takes the debate out of the debate of the realm of the modern literati, the modern intellectuals. He's saying, I'm not interested in what you and your friends are debating about this. What is written in the, in the law? What is written in the word? How do you read it? You see how by doing that, he both puts him on the spot as a legal expert who's an expert in, in reading the law and also says, and I'm not interested in all the modern discussions about this. I'm not interested in the rabbinical traditions or what certain schools think 
I'm interested in what God's word says. What does God's word say? How does it answer your question? What is written there? Um, And that's, you know, we can pause here for a minute and say, that is such an important place for God's people to always stay. What does God's word say? What does God's word say? Um, that really is, it doesn't matter at the end of the day what everybody else is discussing, what the theories out there are, what people are, in, what people are banding about. The question always we ought to come back to is, what is written? What is written in the Word of God? How does He answer the question? Uh, what does God's Word say about this? That's important in our day because we still have people who opine about everything under the sun. I'm amazed every week as I read through commentaries how many pages and pages will be spent trying to figure out some esoteric question that I don't think anybody can settle on. Um, Pages and pages of commentaries I read this week were talking about those other passages in Matthew and Mark when Jesus gives a summary of the law and is Luke building off those old summaries or is this a third story and and on and on and on. And nobody knows. Nobody can figure it out. Uh, nobody was there. They don't know. Um, and you'll read and read and read, and that's what they'll say. Well, you know, scholars are unsure. Um, these things still come up again and again and again. We have these kinds of issues that come up in our day. There are religious issues that are debated between conservatives and liberals, between the Church of Rome and Protestants, between all kinds of camps, Reformed and Reformed Baptists, and you can go on and on and on. But it's always important to come back to this fundamental question. What is written in the Bible? And how do we read that? How do we read what God has to say about this? That's always the question we need to come back to. What is written? How do we read it? Uh, J.C. Ryle had something wonderful to say about this principle of what is written. He said, let the principle contained in these words be one of the foundational principles of our Christianity. Let the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible be the rule of our faith and practice. Holding this principle, we travel upon the king's highway. The road may seem narrow and our faith may be sorely tried, but we shall not be allowed greatly to err. Departing from this principle, we enter on a pathless wilderness. There is no telling what we may be led to believe or do. Forever let us bear this in mind. Here let us cast anchor. Here let us abide. It matters nothing who says a thing in religion, whether an ancient father or a modern bishop or a learned divine. Is it in the Bible? Can it be proved by the Bible? If not, it is not to be believed. It matters nothing how beautiful and clever sermons or religious books may appear. Are they in the smallest degree contrary to Scripture? If they are, they are rubbish and poison and guides of no value. What do the scriptures say? This is the only rule and measure and gauge of religious truth. To the law and to the testimony, says Isaiah, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8.20. Isn't that a wonderful summary? Those, those words deserve to be written in gold. Um, and, and put over us when we are in the world. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Does that settle matters for us? Um, 
This lawyer knows what the Bible says. When Jesus says, what do the scriptures say? How do you read it? How do you inherit eternal life? What do you need to do according to the law to inherit eternal life? The lawyer gives a good answer in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, he, sh- he shows that the, the religious authorities knew what the law was. They knew that first great commandment, as Jesus puts it, Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, he shows that he knows the second commandment that's like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. He shows that the religious experts were well acquainted with the two great commandments in the law. Uh, they were well acquainted with what the law requires um, and the one, and the lawyer is rightly understanding and rightly answering Jesus' question that the one who does these things will live by them. Right? What should you do to inherit eternal life? What must you do? Well, you must do this. You must love the Lord your God. Uh, you must love your neighbor as yourself. That's what you must do to inherit eternal life. That's what this expert says. Um, And Jesus affirms that's the right standard. If you want to ask the question, what must you do to inherit eternal life, that's what you must do. You must love the Lord with your whole being and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus says. Uh, You have answered correctly. Um, Do this and you will live. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You've identified the right standard. Now go do it if you want to live by that. I mean, that's really where the problem comes, isn't it? That's where the problem is revealed. Can he do these things? Can he do these things and live? Is that what the law reveals, the path to eternal life? Uh, No, the, the law reveals the problem. The problem is not in the law. There's nothing wrong with what the law requires. The law is good. The law as articulated by the Lord is good. It's a good and perfect law. It reminds us that all true religion is an outgoing, outward-focused love. It's driven by love, love for God and love for those made in the image of God. That's true. That's what religion ought to be. It's a glorious standard. Right? To talk about a love that reaches out to God with the whole being, that reaches out with love for the Creator who's loved us and made us, who didn't need us but made us anyway, made us for fellowship with Him, made us to be people who love Him in return for the love with which we've been loved by Him. It's a, it's a glorious law to love our God, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to reach out with that same kind of love to people with which we'd want to be treated. There's nothing wrong with what the law requires. The law is good. The law requires good things. It puts at the center of religion a love for God, someone said, serving Him with the totality of their being, with the intensity of love, Love that reveals itself in reverent obedience to all God's particular commandments. There's nothing wrong with the law. 
There's nothing wrong with what the law requires, and there's nothing wrong with what the law promises. What does the law promise to those who could do it? It promises life. Right? Eternal life is in the balance. That's what this passage sets before us. Eternal life is in the balance. And what the law promises is good to those who do it. To those who do it would live. This was the Old Testament equivalent of being saved from our sins. To say you would inherit eternal life. Uh, to receive all of the benefits that come with right fellowship with God. That too is good and glorious. One person said, think of how the New Testament puts that. The blessings of eternal life. It's endless in duration and priceless in quality. It embraces such treasures as God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5. 5. The peace of God which passes all understanding, Philippians 4.7. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 1 Peter 1.8. And knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he's sent, John 17.3. These are the glories of eternal life. Life that's endless and priceless. Lived in that kind of love and peace and joy and knowledge of God. What the law promises is good. But what it reveals to us is we do not live up to that standard. And we don't need to go outside of this passage to see that reality played out for us. That's why we say in question two, how do I come to know my misery? How do I come to know the miserable state in which I'm in? It's the law of God that tells me. Because it's a good law and it holds out good things and it promises good things. And then it stands before us as a mirror and says, compare your life to this. Is that what you see when you look at yourself in the mirror of the law? Do you see someone who loves the Lord with your heart and soul and mind and strength? Do you see someone who loves your neighbor as yourself? And that really is where the problem comes, isn't it? Not with what the law requires or what the law promises, but with the, what the law reveals about us. Is that we don't love as we ought. In fact, it's the opposite. Where there ought to be love, there's hate. We don't love, we actually hate the things that we should love. Isn't this what the lawyer reveals about himself in this passage? Here is someone who's made his study of his life studying the Word of God. Studying the Word of God, trying to understand the Word of God, talking with other people about the Word of God. And here is the teacher who could answer every question he's ever had about the Word of God. Here is someone who could answer anything he's ever wondered, anything he's ever talked about with his fellow lawyers those hard issues of theology that they've not been able to work out. Here is someone who could shed light on anything they asked. Someone who comes willing to teach, willing to make people understand, 
who knows what's in the heart, who shaped the mind, who formed the ears. He's the one who could shed light on any question this guy has. And he has the opportunity to ask the teacher his question. Think about that for a minute. Which, which of us wouldn't love to be able to ask Jesus the questions that we have? To say, here's my chance to ask Jesus this question. This guy had that chance. And what motivated him in asking Jesus this question? He was completely uninterested in how he was going to answer it or the content of his answer unless it was to call him out as someone who didn't know something. There was nothing sincere in this question. It was entirely given to try to put him to the test, to try to call him out, to try to show what he didn't know. And what, what is that an act of but an act of hatred towards your neighbor? You know, you, you would hope a religious expert would have said, he and I are pulling in the same direction. We're trying to give people a knowledge of God. And if he's doing it as a lay teacher, great. And I'll keep doing it as a, as a lawyer and an expert. And we can all teach God's people what they need to know. But he sees it as a competition. He sees it as an opportunity to ask a question to put him on the spot. Um, what is that but an act of hatred for your neighbor? Um, Where's the love here as someone who is supposed to know the word of God? Um, And what's worse is he's not just doing this to his neighbor, he's doing this to his God. That's the real terrible thing about this passage. You You could have followed up with this lawyer and said, How serious a business is it to put the Lord to the test? What does the Old Testament say? How do you read it about what it is to put God to the test? You know, you could quote Deuteronomy 6.5. I assume you could quote Deuteronomy 6.16 that you ought not to put the Lord your God to the test. I'm sure he could have waxed eloquent on the people of God putting the Lord to the test in the wilderness at the waters of Massa and Meribah. I'm sure he could have quoted Psalm 95. That's where God said they put me to the test even the, and put me to the proof even though they'd seen the works I did in Egypt. And so I swore an oath in my anger they would never enter my rest. I'm sure he could have quoted Psalm 95. But what was he doing here? He was putting the Lord to the test. Presumably been listening to Jesus teach. And I don't know how you could have been an expert in God's word and listen to Jesus teach and not just be awestruck at what he had to say. Um, The people who were not experts realized it. They said, here is someone who teaches with authority. Here is someone who knows. And here is someone who should have known. Doesn't know. And acts not out of a motivation of love for neighbor or a love for God, but shows that he hates his neighbor and shows by what he does that he hates his God. It's a reminder that it doesn't matter how much Bible you have in your head if it's not living in your heart. We put a high value on reading the scripture and even memorizing scripture and having that at your command. This lawyer knew a lot of scripture. He had it at his fingertips when he was asked. 
but he shows that it didn't live in his heart. Uh, He could recite it, but he had no love for God or neighbor that showed itself in his conduct here. And that's a warning to us as well. Because as much as we like to point the finger at the lawyer and, and wag our heads at him, we're more like him than we are unlike him. Um, And the hateful nature that's revealed in him is really just the hateful nature that's common to all of humanity, lest the Lord intervene and save. It's the hateful nature that Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Or as Paul puts it in Titus 3.3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Sure, the lawyer knew his Bible. So does the devil. What is the real problem? It lived in his mind, but not in his heart. It was the complaint that God offered in Isaiah 29, 13. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And what is the different message that the Lord brings? It's the message of this passage. It's the message of John 13, 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Because what's the wretched conclusion that this reveals to us? If it reveals to us in the law that we don't live according to the law, and we know that what the law says is you have to live according to the law to inherit the promise, to inherit eternal life, then what's the only wretched conclusion we can draw from this? I can't inherit eternal life because I haven't done what needs to be done. That's the only conclusion we can draw. If those who do this will live and the law reveals to us we do not do this, then the only conclusion we can draw then is that we cannot by the law inherit eternal life. We miss out on all that blessedness that the law holds out to those who do it. If we pay careful attention to the law, we recognize the law not only promises abundant life to those who do it, but it warns about eternal death to those who fail. The law also says in Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. It's not just a matter of missing eternal life. It means that by doing, by failing to do the law, we fall into the curse of the law, which is the opposite of eternal life. It's eternal death. And instead of having God's love poured into our hearts, what we expect is the wrath of God to be poured out against us. Instead of peace with God, we live in fear of the judgment to come. Instead of that joy that's inexpressible, And filled with glory, we have sorrow. Instead of knowing God, he says to us, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the wretched conclusion that we draw if we don't live according to these things. If we don't do these things, we can't live by them. Uh, We will die on account of them. Paul says in Galatians 3.10 and 11, For all those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And so who is in this wretched condition? Everyone. Every sinner who would rely on inheriting eternal life by doing something. We cannot inherit eternal life by doing anything. That's where this Lord's Day leaves us. To feel the misery that we would be in apart from any help from God. Um, That's where this Lord's Day leaves us in developing this notion. Uh, As I said, I don't want to leave you there. Uh, The point of painting the picture of how bad things are is so that we understand the true nature of the good news. Remember, as we said last week, we quoted that pastor who said, none but those who are conscious of being lost can discover that Jesus is the Savior they need. What we need is not to labor under the delusion of this lawyer that there's something you can do to inherit eternal life. You cannot do anything to inherit eternal life unless you do the law perfectly. And seeing us in this wretched state, seeing us in this miserable condition, the Lord took pity on us. And sent us a Savior. The Lord saw us in our miserable condition. Saw our condition for what it is. And said these people cannot be saved unless I intervene. The prophet Isaiah said. Shows the Lord saying I looked around and said who can deliver them. And I saw there's no one who's going to deliver them. So I delivered them. The Lord looks upon us in our misery in our wretched condition. And he forges a way for us to be saved. By sending us the Savior we need to rescue us from our wretched and miserable condition. Who would come into the world and do it. And earn life by it. And earn life not only for himself, but for all who put their faith and trust in him. Who came into the world and did everything that God had required. Who who earned eternal life. And then was willing to die an accursed death to pay for sinners. Jesus is the only one who has done this and lived by it. Who has done everything written in the book of the law and lived by them. He's the only person that ever walks into heaven in his own merit. Um, I love G. G. Morgan, uh, G. Morgan Campbell's description of Jesus on the ascension day. He said, here comes Jesus into heaven. And who comes into heaven? Someone unique. Someone who's never come into heaven before. He says this, Jesus was the first man to enter into the perfect light of heaven in the right of his own holiness. Heaven had never before received such a man. Abel had passed home by faith and prophetic sacrifice, and all the long line of the spirits of the just men made perfect 
were there upon the basis of the mercy of God. But on that ascension day, there came into heaven a man who asked no mercy. Pure, spotless, victorious, he came into the light of heaven and caused no shadow there. Um, That last line is worth the whole quote. He came into the light of heaven and cast no shadow there. He was the only person who ever did this and had life in it. And he laid down that life for sinners that he might pick it up again and allow us to live with him. The lawyer is right in reading the law. He's wrong in looking to it for life. We cannot do these things. We cannot live by these things. The only way to live is by a righteousness that comes to us apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why in other places when someone says, what must I do? Jesus will say, no, 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 not do, believe. And the glory is then all of the treasures of eternal life become ours, not by our doing, but by his doing. Not by our working, but by his working. And that secures for us what we could never secure for ourselves. That provides to us what we could never provide for ourselves. That's what gives us a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. To know that he has done it. It's finished. Everything that needed doing for you and I to live has been done. It's been accomplished for us on the cross. And it's offered to us freely, not on the basis of doing but on the basis of believing, trusting that what he said is true, that those who believe in him will have life in his name. Um, Jesus wants us to understand that so that we can find the only way of escape for our wretched state. There's only one way to escape the misery in which we live, and that's by faith in the Son of God. Only he can rescue us And thanks be to God that he sent a son to rescue us, to set us free from the misery into which we'd flung ourselves. Uh, So that he looks at us not as miserable sinners, but looks at us and sees Jesus. Sees us just as if we'd never sinned or been sinners. Just as if we'd been as perfectly obedient if Christ, as Christ was obedient for us. And all we need to do is accept that gift of God with a believing heart. May we all do that. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the instruction of Jesus, our teacher, that he points us very clearly to the law and what the law requires. We thank you, Lord, for revealing our own misery, and we pray that we would see it clearly so that we might also see clearly where our only hope for salvation lays. We pray that none of us here would try to inherit eternal life by doing, for we know that we cannot do what the Lord Jesus Christ did, that if we look to our own selves and our own righteousness, we are surely lost. But thank you for providing us a Savior, 
one who came into the world and who loved you with all of his heart and with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, who showed that love and perfect devotion to your will even when that will was to die for sinners on the cross. And we thank you that he loved us enough to be willing to lay down his life for us. That it was his great love for his people that drove him to offer that terrible sacrifice. To go through a death that he did not earn, but that we had earned. And to give us the life that we had not earned, but that he earned in our place. Oh, Father, thank you for our Savior. Thank you for the Spirit's clear testimony to his saving work. May we put all our trust in him. And hear us, we pray in his precious name. Amen.